Byron, thank you. Um, there's so much of what we're going to be talking about this morning from the scripture that, that really resonates with, um, with these songs we've been singing, with the prayers that we're praying. You talk about making a difference in a world in which you are living on the margins or on the bottom of the pile or however it is uh, that you think about it. Uh, this is the letter to First Peter, from, from, from Peter to the scattered aliens and exiles uh, all over the area that we know today as Turkey. And this morning we're going to have some fun. Uh, <laughs> we, uh, listen, we're going to read a, script, a passage of scripture together. I'm going to read a long chunk rather than just paraphrasing it or cherry picking it or just throwing out particular verses because I want you to, to be able to feel the full weight of what it is that we're dealing with this morning. Uh, we're going to read this morning 1 Peter chapter 2, and if you want to turn there, I would really encourage you to do that, 1 Peter chapter 2, and I'm going to read verses 11 all the way through chapter 3, verse 7, okay? So uh, let's read through this, and then um, listen, while I read, you're going to hear a lot of stuff that you're like, hmm, wow, uh, really, wow, okay, uh, and I want you to stick with me uh, all the way through it because there's some really incredible, subversive, revolutionary kind of stuff that Peter is doing here and helping the, those, those early Christians to learn how to do as well. So here we go. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, honor the emperor. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. 
He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And now chapter 3, wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands. So that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner, and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. And everybody said, amen. I'll be honest. It's one of those passages that uh, when you are a preacher and you're like, I'm going to do a series over First Peter. You open up 1 Peter, and it's so full of this treasure trove of wisdom and like memorizable nuggets of verses of Scripture, and you're like, I could do a message on that, I could do a message on that. We're going to avoid this part, (laughs) right? I mean, I know it's Scripture. This is just me being authentic and honest, right? Like, what do you do in today's culture, in our world, with a whole passage of Scripture that talks about submitting to an emperor who is trying to oppress and sometimes even torture and kill and and, and, and put people in jail. And then slaves are to submit to their masters. And then women are to submit to their husbands. I don't even know if I'm going to make it through the message without Ashley throwing tomatoes at me at this point. You know, like, uh, and, and then husbands, respect your wives. Like, what do you do with one of these passages? And so, you know, I only had four weeks. I was like, well, we'll just skip that, you know? Like, there's There's this phrase in there, live such good lives among the pagans, that even though they might be prejudiced against you, they would see your good deeds, and when God returns, they'd be so thankful for you and all the good that you've done, uh, that they will praise God and welcome him on the day that he returns. Kind of like a, thank you for coming back, we're so glad for these people that you've given us. There's a message, right? Uh, That's one of those that you're like, yeah, we can go with that, but here's the thing. All the rest of that stuff that I just read is an exposition from Peter on how to live such good lives. And you can't ignore it. And there's so much that's going on underneath the surface of this that I I just want to deal with it. So I just decided, look, that's one of those areas that I'd rather not spend the time to, to work through together. And so rather than skipping it, we just decided to go all for it and read every word of it and go at it. And I'm telling you guys, this last couple weeks of wrestling with this passage has been some of the most meaningful times of interaction with Scripture that I've, I can remember. You know, it's one of those things where 
especially some of those places in scripture that you want to avoid because it rubs you the wrong way or you're like, we've evolved beyond this or something like that, and you hold it as an arm's length, the minute you open your heart to even the most difficult places of scripture and you say, God, what are you doing here? God will do incredible stuff through that, right? So, Enough preamble, right? Let, let me go back and, and, and set up. We're in 1 Peter here. Uh, chapter 1 last week, we talked about how this was a letter from Peter around the second half of the, of the first century uh, to Christians who have been scattered and who are aliens and, and who are living kind of on the margins of society. And they're trying to figure out what's it like to live and how do you live as faithful witnesses to God? In a world that very often is antagonistic against you, prejudiced against you, sometimes doesn't understand what you believe or how you are called to live, and and so makes things difficult, shoves you out onto the margins of society, whatever it is. How do we live in that way? And so Peter starts the letter and he says, look, I understand this is where you're at, to the strangers and exiles scattered across all these different areas, all these different regions. Remember who you are. I know you feel like strangers and exiles, and there's a legitimacy to that, but remember, you are the chosen people of God. Remember this? Uh, hold on, pull that back, Lynetta. I'm not quite there. Remember, this is, we're in chapter one. You are the chosen people of God. You are God's elect. You have been sanctified to God. So like pulled up into God, uh, set apart for him. You have been sprinkled by the blood of Christ. And then he goes on. So that's important. Remember who you are. You have been saved by Christ. You have an inheritance because of that that is kept for you, not here, but in heaven. It is kept for you. You don't have to defend it. You don't have to guard it. In fact, while you're waiting on it, God himself even now is shielding you and working out that salvation among you. And so because this inheritance is kept for you, because God is your shield and is guarding you even now, and you don't have anything really to live for or gain or hold on to in this world, you are now in this world set free to be holy, to be different, to be set apart to God, to be pure, to be righteous, to be good, to reflect all the characteristics of God in this world. You don't have to gratify those old sinful natures, those sinful desires of the old nature anymore. You have been guarded, kept, set free, shielded by God in order to be holy. So this is the start. This is the start of the letter here. Remember who you are and what God is doing among you. He goes on into chapter two and he he starts fleshing this out a little bit. He says, now, since God has set you free to be holy, I don't want you to crave those old things that used to nourish you, those old desires of the sinful nature. Like, don't go running after all the things that the world is trying to feed itself with. Instead, crave that pure, he calls it spiritual milk. Crave the nourishment that the spirit gives you. Go after the spirit. Let that nourish you. Let that fill you up. Don't look for anything else because God has, has brought you out and made you into a people out of nothing by his great mercy. He's called you out. He's made you a family. He's knit you together into a family of God, into this great spiritual building. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone, is, the, is this wonderful place of honor in this building, and you're all built into the same building uh, in it. And now, that verse in chapter 2, verse 9, you are 
a chosen people. Remember, hear this uh, as if you are those strangers and exiles and those aliens in a foreign world living on the margins. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. God made you into a people for the express purpose of of you now collectively together and as individuals giving witness to and giving praise to the God who made you into this people, who called you to himself, who embraced you, sanctified you, saved you, who keeps your inheritance secure. He he uses this phrase here, a royal priesthood, a royal priesthood. I've been reflecting on the meaning of what it is to be a a priest and a royal priesthood. And this is one of the the functions that Jesus played out in the world. And and he picks this up from the Old Testament where God had established a a priestly um, tribe within his own people. And the, the role of the priestly tribe was to stand between God and his people and to represent one to the other. So the priest would stand before God in the temple and and bring prayers on behalf of the people and bring offerings and, and represent all of the nation to God. And then the priest would hear from God and turn around to the people and say, here's what I heard from God and here's what God is commanding us to do. And so this is kind of the role of a priest to stand between and represent one to the other. I heard this great word picture that stuck with me uh, last month from a guy named N.T. Wright. And he says... He says, you know how like in a spy kit, uh, they'll have like this mirror that you, you point out around a corner and you look, the point of the mirror is to stick it out around the corner so that you can look at the mirror and catch a reflection of something that you can't see straight away, right? He said, the priest functions very much in the world like an angled mirror. This is your function. This is your role as the people of God to be this mirror so that when people look at you, and especially when people look at us collectively, there wouldn't be anything about us that they would want to fixate on, but that there would be a reflection around the corner of a God, of a kingdom, that they can't quite see with their physical eyes. So you need the mirror. This is the role of a royal priesthood, to be that mirror. We don't care if anybody looks at us. The spotlight's not for us. We're just here to reflect God to the people and, for another message, the people to God, right? So this is your role as a royal priesthood to reflect God's character and likeness into the world so that people who can't get a glimpse of him straight away with their own physical eyes can get an understanding by looking to you at what he looks like and what the kingdom of God functions like, which is very often way different from the kingdoms of this world. Are you with me so far? Does this make sense? All right. You are a royal priesthood, a chosen nation for the purpose of giving praise to God. Um, As people who belong to another kingdom, then he goes on, don't give in to the old desires. And when he talks about those old desires, I think our minds a lot of times go to like, you know, the physical, uh, the the greed, the lust, the, um, the gluttony, these kinds of desires in the world. In context, I think Peter's talking about, don't give in to those old desires, talking around verses 10 and 11 uh, or so in chapter two. Don't give in to those old desires. And I think he means the desire for self-preservation. 
the desire to carve out your place in the world, the desire for self-defense when you feel like the world is coming at you unjustly, the desire for justification when a world doesn't understand your beliefs or your patterns or your practices. Don't give in to the desires of the world that call for you to carve out your spot and hold on to it in the world. Remember, God is your shield. Your inheritance is being kept for you. You don't have to keep it for yourself. Don't give in to those old desires. And then he goes to that verse, uh, verse 12 there. Um, chapter 2, verse 12, live such good lives. That's a great phrase, isn't it? Live such good lives among the pagans, which is this, uh, this old school word for people who don't believe like you believe. For all the people, all the nations that you're scattered among, live such good lives among them that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. There is this new way of being in the world. One commentator I read uh, this week calls this the messianic revolution. And I want to tell you, a lot of this stuff sounds really old school that, that I read earlier all the way through with the slaves and emperors and masters and wives and husbands and husbands and wives and all these kinds of things. But this is revolutionary talk. The thing is, it's not revolution like we're used to hearing it. It's not like picking up arms and going after it and changing the kingdoms of this world. This is what this commentator called the messianic revolution, the revolution in the way that Jesus uh, sought a revolution. And it was to live such good lives among the people that you, that you live among, to serve them, to, to love them, to selflessly lay down your life and not carve out your own space and not justify yourself and not get into big hairy arguments with people about it and, and just to live a life of love and service and submission to people and try and find a way to serve those around you. Live such good lives. This is a revolution the way Jesus did revolution. Reminds me a lot, uh, this verse here reminds me a lot of this verse from Jeremiah, which was given to the people when they were in exile in the Old Testament in Babylon, and, and, uh, and they're, they're trying to figure out how do we live as exiles way back in the day, and Peter draws on a ton of this stuff from Jeremiah and Isaiah, and, and Jeremiah told the people, the exiles, the strangers and aliens way back hundreds of years before, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Well, this makes sense, doesn't it? If you, if you spend all your time, if we spend all our time fighting against the city that we're, we're living in, then there's a real, a real high probability that some arrows are going to turn back at us, right? So instead, Jeremiah says, look, just seek the peace and prosperity of the city you live in. If it prospers, you live there too. You're going to be do, doing okay. But that, that is a great rationale for living such good lives among all the people. But that's not where Peter's coming from. For Peter, the rationale is that we live like this because Jesus lived like this and calls us to follow his way of being in the world. You look at Jesus, you read the Gospels, you recognize Jesus lived in a different way 
than everybody else lived. And and following Jesus is not just about believing the right things about Jesus. It's not just about receiving the forgiveness that God offers through Jesus. It is those things, but it's so much more than that. It's learning to live in the new way of life that Jesus gave us as a model, right? This this way of life that selflessly loved and, and served and submitted and didn't repay evil for evil, but with good. And this is the way Jesus lived in the world as a reflection of his Father in heaven, as a reflection of the way the kingdom works, the way the kingdom of God works. And now, we we get to this point in the scripture and we're like, yeah, we're all for that. Live such good lives, that's a great message. Let's pray and go home, Uh, right? Uh, and, And yet, at this point, this is the point where Peter really, guys, seriously starts dropping some seriously countercultural revolutionary, in-your-face, kind of like master's level class in in following Jesus all the way down kind of level of stuff. And if you skim through it, you'll miss it. Maybe if you heard me read it the first time, you thought, where are we going with that? You'll miss it. But I'm telling you, the longer you live with this, and I want to encourage you, live with it for a little while. I don't know if I'm going to be able to get all the way into it today, but there's so much powerful stuff about what it means to live a good life to be good, live such good lives in a world where you don't have any power. And here's his word, chapter 2, verse 13. Uh, I think we've got this on the screens, Lynetta. Chapter 2, 13. Next slide. Nope, I don't have it. All right, I'm just going to read it then. Here's his word. Submit. Submit. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority. We love that word, don't we? Everybody loves that word, right? Uh, That's just something that the whole world is clamoring. How do I get down below somebody else, you know? Uh, and, And yet this is Peter. Live such good lives. And here's how you do it. Submit to everybody. For the Lord's sake submit if it's the emperor or if it's the governors or listen if you are a slave which in early christianity there were a lot of slaves because they were a a part of the powerless culture that that heard the gospel and said wait we have status in the kingdom of god yes absolutely uh and so there were a lot of slaves serving non-believing masters and and so he said if you're a slave serving a non-believing master submit if you're a wife who's married to an unbelieving husband submit if you're a husband by the way even though you kind of have the power in the world, just go ahead and give that up while you're at it. Uh, and respect your wife so that you can pray together, right? He just submits, submits, submit. Doesn't matter what situation you're in. Doesn't matter what place in life you're in. Emperors, governors, masters, unbelieving husbands, even bad ones, even ones who don't treat you right, submit. Wait, What? I, I, like, I thought this was supposed to be revolutionary, you're saying. This just sounds like kind of a complicit, just go along with the way that the world is. We wish from our perspective, don't we? From our elevated, enlightened culture, we wish that Peter would have spoken out more forcefully against the injustices of the empire. 
We wish for sure that Peter would have spoken out against slavery. We wish he would have spoken out against kind of this inequality between men and women. We wish that he would have spoken against all of these injustices, but he doesn't. Notice also that he doesn't condone them and he doesn't say this is the way God has made things to be for all time and so this is God's word for you and this is the way that it ought to be. He doesn't say that either. He just says this is the world we live in. There are unbelieving husbands in a culture that has a huge hierarchy of male uh, dominating females. There are masters and slaves. We live in a culture, he says, where there's an emperor and he has the authority over you. This is the world we live in. It's just kind of like here it is. This is the reality that we live in. There's no justification for this. There's no defense of it. But the message is not about whether these are right or wrong. The message that Peter's giving us is these all belong to the old world that's passing away. Listen, all of these structures and systems and powers and authorities and hierarchies belong to the old world that's passing away, and you don't belong to that old world. You don't belong to it. And listen, there is no authority or hierarchy or structure in the world that can keep you from doing what the Lord has called you to do anyway, which is lay your life down for people. Just get underneath people. Just serve them. Just look for a way to, to find your way to the bottom and lift other people up and serve them and selflessly love. Because remember, you are a royal priesthood, which means what? You are the angled mirror, which means what? You are here to reflect the character of God in the world. And Jesus is the one who showed us what that looks like the most. And so, if you want to reflect God's character in the world, find a way to give up the power that you have. Even if, and if you don't have power, just live joyfully and hopefully in the middle of that because Jesus did the same kind of thing. We do these things not because we're required by law, not because the emperor has authority or the husband has more power or whatever. We don't do this. We don't submit and serve and lay our lives down in love for people because any of these worldly power structures tell us to. They don't have any power over us. We do these things because the Lord has called us to this way of life in the world as a reflection of a different kingdom. So chapter two, verse 21, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Listen, I understand that this is a hard lesson to learn. The idea when the whole world is seeking after status and possessions and a place at the top of the pile for a group of people to say, we are not interested in being at the top of the pile and to go the other direction. This is a hard lesson. It was hard for Peter. Think about all the things that it took Peter a long time to kind of settle in with this lesson. Peter, I, I think about Peter being there at the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus started saying really radical kinds of things like, listen, if a soldier asks you to carry his pack one mile like you're commanded to, take it too because you can. 
If somebody strikes you on the right cheek, rather than swinging back at them, just turn your other cheek. Super revolutionary stuff going on there. You've heard it said, love your neighbors, but I'm telling you, love your enemies. Pray for the people who persecute you. Peter, you got to imagine, he, he's just like every other Jewish kind of oppressed person, young adult guy in the day is like, where's my sword, you know? Like, let's go lead a revolt. And the Messiah is supposed to revolt and overthrow the kingdoms of this world and set things right in this world using the, for, the, the, the ways of this world. And Jesus just did something different. When it came to the end of Jesus' life, and Jesus was saying, after having shown for three years this is the way of his life, that he was leading a whole different kind of revolution, he said, look, guys, I'm going to give my life. I'm, I'm going to give it. I'm going to lay my life down for you. And Peter's like, no, you're not. You're the Messiah. You're leading a revolution. We're going to overthrow the powers, Jesus. And Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. How about that last supper when Peter and all the disciples are gathered there and, and Jesus comes in wearing a towel around his waist? This is their leader? And he comes with a towel and a basin of water. This is our Lord, guys. And he kneels down and he starts washing the disciples' feet. He gets to Peter. Peter, no, Lord. It's a hard lesson, right? No, Lord, that's not the way the kingdom works. And Jesus says, yes. It is. If you want to belong to me, you got to let me wash your feet. This is what we do. And then after that, Jesus is out in the garden and, and the soldiers come to get him. Still having trouble sinking in for Peter. He pulls out a sword and slices off a guard's ear. Jesus picks it up and heals the guard and turns to Peter and says, do you think I'm leading an armed revolt? Those who live by the sword die by the sword, Jesus' revolution comes from a different kingdom. It is not about replacing one worldly kingdom with a marginally better or more advanced other worldly kingdom. Which, if history tells us anything, will end up being just as bad as the one that it replaces. It is about a revolution that comes from a different kingdom altogether, and you can't fight that battle against flesh and blood. That's not our battle. Our battle isn't against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of this dark world. And the way you fight that battle, Peter says, is by radically being obedient to the way of Jesus who laid down the way of the revolution for us by laying his life down and serving and submitting and giving himself for people. By his wounds, we are healed. Chapter 2, verses 22 through 24, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, by his wounds, we are healed. This is the story in which you and I were saved, into which you and I have been healed, and as we inhabit this story, 
we have an opportunity to become also a part of God's healing for the world. One of the best mirror moves you can make as Christians in the world today, especially as the church becomes maybe more marginalized, more of a minority in a culture, one of the best mirror moves you can make to be that royal priesthood, one of the best Christian witnesses that you can be from the margins in a skeptical world, for the Lord's sake, for the Lord's sake, serve, submit, selflessly give your lives over in love, even to people who don't understand. Because this shows that there is another kingdom at play here. Maybe the people will see the good and it will silence the foolish talk that they have against you. Maybe even when the Lord returns, they will be ready to say, God, thank you so much for being here. We're so glad you're here and for these people that you've given us. Maybe that harsh master will see the joy and the hope that you have even in the middle of a terrible circumstance and his heart will get convicted. Maybe that unbelieving husband will catch a glimpse because of the mirror of this wife who is showing her character and the character of the Lord working through her will come around to faith. And in fact, that's the way a lot of husbands did come around to faith in those early days. The women led the way. And by the way, if you're a husband and you naturally in that culture already have the authority and you naturally already have a few more muscles, uh, typically, don't use that as a cover-up for just lording it over people. Just get down anyway. Respect, serve. Do the same kind of thing. Like, like Paul says in another place, husbands and wives submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the pattern of the kingdom. It's the way of the kingdom. Quite possibly, if Christians would live this way in the world, this radically different way, full of hope and joy, regardless of how far down on the bottom of the pile that we become, someone will see you joyfully serving the Lord from the bottom of the pile, and they may ask, why are you doing this? How can you be in this position in life and serve with such joy and such hope and such selflessness. Like, that's, we're going this way and every, you're going that way with a smile on your face. And they ask you about that. Where does this come from? And Peter says in chapter three, after he's finished with all of this talk about all of the submitting things, he says, um, if that happens, always be ready, he says. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. I want to encourage you this morning. Listen, there's a lot of like heavy, uh, you know, this is master's level classes in Christianity going on this morning. I want you to know this. But, but on another level, it's super foundational. Here's how I'd like for us to respond. We're going to put on a song here in just a minute. And I want to challenge you this morning. Think about three relationships or circumstances or areas in life where you don't have the power or the authority 
where somebody's over the top of you. Maybe you're a child, maybe you're an adult child and you have a parent. And it's really hard for you to like go underneath that parent. Uh, you just like, like you know, just kind of, oh, you know, under that. What if you just, for the Lord's sake, submitted in that relationship? How about a boss? You got a boss. And whether the boss is good or bad, it doesn't matter. What if you threw yourself for the Lord's sake in reverence to Christ out of fear for the Lord into joyful, hopeful submission in that place? What would it look like for you to submit in a political arena? What would it look like for you to submit on Facebook? You know, uh, somebody who's louder than you. I want you to think of three areas where you are naturally in this culture underneath and ask God to help you to live as a faithful witness there. And then I want you to think of one thing. We're just going to take a couple minutes to do this, to pray about this. I want you to think of one area where you have the authority so we live in a culture, unlike Peter's, where many of us have positions of authority. We have some power. We have some responsibility. We have some people who, by the world standards, are underneath us. What would it look like for you in a supervisory position as a parent, as a husband, as a person of the police or military? What would it look like for you to use that power and authority in service to somebody else out of reverence for Christ? Would you bow your heads with me this morning? Three relationships, circumstances, situations that you might be able to lay down, selflessly serve, submit as a way of reflecting the character of Christ in the world. And then one.